It was only days before his death that Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and the people lined the streets with branches, and they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. A reference to Psalm 118 with application to Jesus. We looked this morning and discussed the likely historical background of the 118th Psalm. It's one of the collection of the Hillel Psalms, the Hallelujah or Praise the Lord Psalms, the songs which the children of Israel would sing aloud as they went on their journeys to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple. Likely this particular psalm has in mind the historical events that we read about in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. After having been in captivity for a period of years, after having experienced what it was like to be decimated by the enemy, they were released and they went back home and they rebuilt their home, the walls and the temple and their livelihood, but not without disturbances from the enemies, which God delivered them from as well. And so after uh, having rebuilt all of these things, they uh, observed the Feast of Tabernacles in Nehemiah chapter 8. And this psalm perhaps looks back on all of that. It is a psalm that reminds us of the importance of praising God for all of his goodness and emphasizes our need to trust him and thank him in every circumstance. You remember that the psalm begins and ends with a call to give thanks. Psalm 118, verses 1 to 4, a call to give thanks. And there is in these first four verses, number one, a reason, and number two, the participants. The reason, the psalmist says, is that God is good, and God's goodness most generally refers to his benevolence. It is an all-inclusive term that includes his mercy and his grace and his pity and his patience and his compassion and his forgiveness and so many other wonderful things about him. But the specific area of the goodness of God that this psalm has in mind is his mercy or his faithful love or his loving kindness, which the psalmist says at the end of verse number one, endures forever. When we're talking about the mercy or the loving kindness or the faithfulness of God, we're, uh, or the faithful uh, love of God, we are talking about the promise-keeping nature of God. We're talking about the fact that God made a covenant with his people, and though they turned their backs on him time after time, yet God remained faithful to them. God's faithfulness. And then in the last three verses of this call, in, the first, in chapter, excuse me, Psalm 118, verses 1 to 4, we have the participants. The reason is that God is good and his mercy endures forever. And the ones who are to acknowledge the goodness and the mercy of God is everyone. He calls on the nation of Israel as a whole, in verse 2, to thank and praise God because his mercy endures forever. He calls on the house of Aaron 
in verse number 3 to thank and praise God because his mercy endures forever. He calls on everyone who acknowledges God and follows him faithfully to thank him and praise him, verse 4. And then he begins to explain why. In verse 5 through 9, the last section we looked at this morning, he tells us the reason is because the Lord answered. The Lord answered. I called on the Lord in distress, and the Lord answered me, and he set me in a broad place, the psalmist says, using himself uh, to represent the whole of Israel. He says, the Lord delivered us, verse 5, therefore there is no need to fear, verse 6, and because the Lord is our helper, victory is certain, verse 7, And so, therefore, it is better to trust in the Lord than to trust in man or princes or anyone or anything else. Verse 8 and 9. Why should we praise God? Why should we thank Him? Because He is good. He is good in that His mercy endures forever. His faithfulness endures forever. And that is seen in verse 5 through 9, the fact that He delivers, that He answers, that He helps, that He assures victory. And so, therefore, we trust in him. Now look at verses 10 through 14. Why thank God? Because he answered, verse 5 through 9, verse 10 to 14, because he helped. Psalm 118, verses 10 to 14, because the Lord helped. All the nations surrounded me, he says, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surround me. Yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You, that is speaking to the enemy, you, the enemy, you push me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Now, verses 10 to 14 answer the question of verses 5 through 9. Verse 5 through 9 tells us that the Lord gave Israel confidence. It is better to trust in the Lord, Israel says in verse 8 and 9. How did Israel learn that lesson? Because in verse 10 to 14, they had seen the help They had seen the power and they had seen the deliverance of God on multiple occasions. In verse number 10 and 11, he describes the fact that the enemy surrounded him. But then in verse number number 12, he says that the enemy, though he surrounded me, their attacks were really more of an annoying type of threatening, but rather not lethal. That's the point of the images that he uses, bees and, uh, who were quenched like, uh, like a fire of thorns. Uh, an annoyance, yes. Uh, someone who caused us problems, yes. But someone who had the ability to completely ruin us, no. And why is that the case? Because verse 14. Because the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He even tells us in verse number 12, speaking to the enemy, he says, you pushed me violently. And the image of pushing has to do with an ancient army using a battering ram, with pushing their foe all the way to the edge of destruction. 
And the image is one of the enemy pushing Israel as far as they could push them, pushing them almost to the brink of destruction, and yet not being able to complete their task. And the reason is because of verse 14. Why do we trust in God? Verse 5 through 9, he helped us. He answered us, rather, verse 5 through 9. And he gave us confidence. And the reason he gave us confidence is because we saw his help. Verse 10 through 14. Verse 14 takes our minds back to the book of Exodus. And the reason is because... This verse is actually a quote from Exodus chapter 15 and verse number 2, which is the song of victory that Moses sang after the children of Israel had been delivered from Pharaoh and from his army. They sang a song of victory on that occasion, and the psalmist reaches back into history and he grabs that same idea and he applies it to this situation. So this psalm, as we said this morning, not only does it take our minds to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and to the restoration of the children of Israel from captivity, but there is a sense in which this psalm really captures, in a small snapshot, the entirety of Israel's history. Every time the enemy surrounded them and pushed them to the brink of being defeated, God delivered them without fail. And so they remember him because of it. Psalm 145 and verse 14 says that the Lord upholds all who fall and he raises up all who are bowed down. Give thanks to God, verses 1 through 4, everyone because he is good. And the particular part of his goodness that we want to talk about is his mercy or his loving kindness. And we have seen his loving kindness or his mercy in that, verses uh, 5 through 9, he answered our cry, number 1. And number 2, verses 10 to 14, he helped us whenever we needed his help. And every time he needed his help, we needed his help, he helped us. I would direct your attention back this morning as we did to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, where the Hebrews writer will tell us that the Lord is our helper. We should not fear anything that man could do unto us because we know that God is there with us. Now look how he brings this all to a summary in verses 15 to 18. He tells us that the Lord is our salvation. The Lord is our salvation. Listen to this. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. The cry of thanksgiving, verses 1 to 4, leads to an account of God's salvation in verses 5 through 14 and then gives way to a thunderous echo of the songs of the righteous, verse 15 through 18. As they think back on the victories that God has provided for them over and over again, the psalm describes a situation in which 
the loud voice, the thunderous roar, if you will, of songs of rejoicing are found in the tents of the righteous. The tents of the righteous being an image of soldiers who have been victorious in battle. In fact, he goes on in verse 16, in verse 15 and 16, and he talks about the right hand of the Lord. And the right hand of the Lord represents his power. He says the right hand of the Lord is exalted because it does valiantly. And the word valiantly has to do with military uh, victory. He is describing, the psalmist is describing God as one who has given the children of Israel victory. And so therefore, as victors, they raise their voice with thanksgiving. But I want you to take a moment and go to the end of this section, verse 18. And you might just make a note that verse 18 may very well be pointing back to, maybe very well be pointing back to verse number 5. If verses 5 through 18 constitute one section of this psalm, which I believe that they do, then verse 18 then may very well be supplying the conclusion to the distressful situation which the psalmist begins the section with in verse 5. He says, I called on the Lord in distress. And remember that the word distress has to do with being compressed in a tight space. And then in verse number 18, he says, the Lord has chastened me severely. The chastening, perhaps, is the distress in verse number 5. And the point that he's making is that this has to do with discipline. That all that was endured, that is described in verse 5 through verse 14 has to do with the chastening or with the instructive or formative discipline of the Lord in trying to perfect his people. So they cry for victory because the Lord has not given us over to death, but rather he has disciplined us. He has chastened us in a way that is productive. But here's the main point of it. The main point of it is, as we've said, victory. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 would be a great New Testament application. We have victory over the world. Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, we have victory over sin. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 through 57, we have victory over death. So while the children of Israel may have looked at Psalm 118 and in their minds they would have thought exodus from Egypt or restoration from Babylonian captivity or whatever the event may have been in their past, when we look to a psalm like this, we think of the song that we sing about victory in Jesus because we know what God has done for us in him. So we give thanks, verses 1 to 4, just as they did. We know that the Lord has answered our cries in distress and in helplessness, verse 5 through 9, just as they did. We know that God has provided for us the help that we need, that we can't provide for ourselves, just as they did, verses 10 to 14. And so, therefore, we cry out with joy and with gladness and with rejoicing, verse 15 to 18, because God has given us the victory. But how has he done it? That's the second part of the psalm. Quickly, I want you to look with me at now verses 15, excuse me, verses 19 and 20. 
Now we get to the second part of the psalm. In the first part of the psalm, the worshipers are pictured as on their way to Jerusalem. They're on their way to the temple to worship. But now in verse 19 and 20, they have arrived there. And the Bible tells us in this psalm, verse 19 and 20, this section, we'll just call it, open the gates. They cry out in verse 19 and say, Open to me the gates of righteousness and I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the intention of the worshiper. But listen to the response of the gatekeeper in verse 20. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. And the emphasis is something like this. This is the gate of the Lord through which only the righteous will enter. This isn't anything new. Because earlier in the book of Psalms, Psalm 15, David asked this question, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle and who may dwell in your holy hill? And the answer is given, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. The answer to the question in Psalm 15 is, if you're going to enter into the tabernacle of God, if you're going to enter into the presence of God, then you have to be living like God. Godliness, righteousness, holiness, that's the emphasis of Psalm 15, and that's the point of Psalm 118, verse 19 and 20. The worshipers imagine being in a situation in which you have traveled a great distance to arrive at the temple to knock on the doors and say, please let me in, open the gate so that I can offer my sacrifice to God. And the gatekeeper says, only the righteous may enter here and you, my friend, are not righteous. What a terrible situation that would be. And yet, that image is very similar, isn't it, to what the Bible describes about the judgment day. Remember Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who, what? Does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, have we not done many wonderful works in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? And the Lord will answer and say, depart from me, I never knew you, you who work iniquity. We have a scene in those three verses of folks on the judgment day who will believe with all of their being that they will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, only to be surprised to find that the opposite is true. Pray that none of us here will be found in that number. Verse 19 and 20 says that the gates are going to be open only to those who are of righteous character. Only those who are living their lives in accordance with the will of God will find entrance into the temple of God. Which, by the way, note Psalm 118 verse 4. Who are we talking to in this psalm? The nation of Israel, verse 2. The house of Aaron, verse 3. And who in verse 4? Those who fear the Lord. Those who fear the Lord are those who obey God. Those who fear the Lord are those who are living faithfully for God. And it is those who are living faithfully for God who had better make sure that they're giving thanks to God for all of his benefits. See Psalm 100 and uh, Psalm 103. 
But now look how the image continues to develop in verse 21 through 24. Verse 21 through 24, it's the Lord's doing. You see, in verse 19 and 20, the, we've arrived to the temple and we've learned that only the righteous may enter here. How does one become righteous? Look at verse 21 to 24. I will praise you because you've answered me and you've become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the, the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. From a historical perspective, the Israelite may very well have looked at verses 21 through 24 and seen the nation of Israel. Because whenever he describes the stone which is rejected by the builders, it's, it's in a sense describing a, a contractor walking through the construction site and finding pieces of material, maybe lumber or stone or whatever, that are inferior. And so he takes those inferior pieces and he casts them aside and pays them no mind. You see, to the nation of Israel, and this is borne out, by the way, in the book of Nehemiah, the nation of Israel in the eyes of the heathen nations around them was nothing. Was the stone that the builder rejected. It was an inferior product, an inferior part that didn't need to be used. And yet though the nations around them, their enemies looked at them as being inferior, what did God do? How did God see them? Not as an inferior thing to be thrown away, but as a chief cornerstone, as a vital piece great importance. So their exodus from Egypt, their deliverance from captivity in Babylon, their ability to rebuild the temple, their ability to rebuild the walls, their ability to overcome Sanballat and Tobiah, their ability to be victorious in what they did. It wasn't their doing. Whose doing was it? Verse 23. That's the Lord's doing. God did that. They couldn't claim any uh, they couldn't claim any credit for it. Nehemiah, Ezra, no, they couldn't take credit for that. Moses couldn't take credit for that. Joshua couldn't take credit for the conquest of Canaan in the book of Joshua. All of their victory, which this ties us back into the previous uh, half of this psalm, is attributed to the Lord. It's the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So therefore, this is the day that the Lord has... What's the day? It's the day of rejoicing. In the context of the psalm, the psalmist has made his way to Jerusalem and now he's arrived, verse 19 and 20, he's able to enter in and he's able to praise God. He is able to praise God because of the wonders that God has done because of the Lord's doing. So therefore, this is the day that the Lord has made and we will rejoice in it. Now you're probably already 10 steps ahead of me and you probably know that this section of scripture is absolutely pregnant with messianic application because Jesus in Matthew chapter 21 and verse number 42 he applied this to himself in a parable in which the uh, in which the master's son was rejected and murdered Jesus speaking about how the Jewish people were going to turn their back on him and reject him the son of God and, and crucify him he quotes this very passage about the uh, stone which the builders rejected having become the chief cornerstone 
meaning that to the Jews, Jesus was like the useless, inferior building material that needed to be cast aside. But to God, nothing inferior about him at all. And to his plan, nothing inferior at all. The Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4 and verse number 11, as he stands before the Sanhedrin council and he takes them to task for their sinfulness and for their part in murdering the Son of God, he quotes this passage and he applies it to Jesus Christ. And he does it again in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 7 as he talks about the church and he talks about the people of God and he talks about Jesus Christ being our chief cornerstone. So while the Israelite may have looked at Psalm 118 verses 21 through 24 and thought about Egypt and thought about Babylon and thought about Joshua and all of the other events in their history, the ultimate fulfillment of this is far greater. The ultimate fulfillment of these passages is what we call the scheme of redemption. It's what uh, the Apostle Paul would describe in Romans chapter 11, as the marvelous wisdom of God. It is what Paul would describe in Romans chapter 8 as God being for us. And so no one has the ability to stand against us. What God has done in fashioning from eternity, according to the book of Ephesians, this great plan in which the salvation of man, the redemption of man, could be, could be assured. It's a marvelous doing, a great doing, wondrous in our eyes. And that ultimately is what these verses are pointing towards. So when we think about the peace that passes understanding, we think about Psalm 118. When we think about joy, Psalm 118. When we think about forgiveness, Psalm 118. When we think about the physical blessings we have, Psalm 118. When we think about the spiritual blessings we have in great abundance, Psalm 118. The worshiper arrives at the temple and he says, we're worshiping God because the Lord has done marvelous things. And he has made a day of victory and it's a day of rejoicing. That is every day of our lives because of the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. Now look at verse 25 through 27. We're almost done. We'll just call this section Hosanna. Verse 25 through 27, save now, I pray, O Lord. I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord. And um, he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Matthew chapter 21 and verse number 9. As Jesus entered into Jerusalem... The triumphal entry, as it is so rightfully called, the people cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What does Hosanna mean? It means save us, we pray, or save us now. It's directly taken from Psalm 118 and verse number 25. When the people saw Jesus coming into Jerusalem, although they didn't fully comprehend who he was and what he was doing, at least in their minds, these thoughts of victory were triggered, which is why they cried out as they did. This particular section of this psalm brings this to a close. 
save us. Sin prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. God has given us light. He is summarizing all of the language leading up to this point, all of the language, rather, that has gone previous, and the verses previous to this, everything that he said about the Lord hearing, and about the Lord answering, and about the Lord delivering and saving, and about the Lord giving victory, is all summarized in verse 25, 26, and 27. Lord, you who have heard, and you who have answered, and you who have delivered, Save us now. Lord, you who have heard and answered and delivered, blessed is the one who comes in your name. Lord, you who have heard and you who have answered and you who who have delivered, you've given us light. Now, here's where the real application comes into this psalm. Look at verse 27, the end of it. Strange language. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. There is no indication anywhere in the law of Moses that the sacrifice was to be bound to the horns of the altar. So for the sake of time, without going through all of the working to try to figure out what this means, let me tell you what I think it's referring to. I think the idea is something like this. Begin the sacrifice. Begin the sacrifice. Remember that in verses 1 through 18, the worshiper is on his way to what? To worship, to offer sacrifice. Now in verses 19 and following, the worshiper has arrived with knowledge of everything God has done that's elaborated in verse 5 through 18. He has learned in verse 19 and 20 that only the righteous can enter in to do it. He has learned in verse 21 through 24 that it is God, the stone which the builder rejected, that has become the chief cornerstone. It's the Lord's doing that's made righteousness possible. And so now in verse 25 through 27, he summarizes all of that by offering blessing and he is ready to offer his sacrifice. There is some enthusiasm here. There's some excitement. In other words, let's not drag our feet to the altar. Let's hurry up and start the sacrifice. Let's hurry up and give everything that we have to express our thanksgiving to the God who's done everything that we've been talking about for 26 and a half verses. That's the idea. Now, here's the application. The psalmist is describing the giving of peace and thanksgiving offerings being offered for the peace that God has provided. Now, what's my offering? What am I prepared to give? The thing about God is that he doesn't require much from us. He only requires everything. He requires our very lives. Isn't that what Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says? I beseech you, the apostle Paul says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable in his sight because it's your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the Apostle Paul says. What sacrifice are you prepared to offer the Lord? You can't come before him empty-handed. The worshiper who travels to Jerusalem singing this song who knocks on the door and says, open the gates and let me in. He doesn't come empty-handed. He comes with gifts to offer as an expression of his thanksgiving. Don't come to the Lord empty-handed. What are you prepared to offer? 
your time, your abilities, your financial resources, your energy, your prayer, your sweat equity, your life. We've got to be willing to offer to the Lord everything that the Lord requires. That is the ultimate expression of thanksgiving. So, just like the psalm began, it now ends. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. When we think about the goodness of God, when we think about the mercy of God, when we think about the blessings that God has given us, both spiritually and physically, in great abundance, we ought to think about this psalm, and we ought to think about its command in verse 1 and verse 29. Give thanks to the Lord. Lesson is yours. Hope this study has been helpful and encouraging for you today. We're going to offer the Lord's invitation now, and it may be that there's someone here with a desire to respond, perhaps to become a Christian. We would love nothing more than to assist you in doing that. But maybe tonight you are a Christian, and as you think about how God has blessed your life, you think, you know, I've, I've not been as thankful as I should. Or I've not offered to him the sacrifices that I should. I've come to the Lord empty-handed. Don't do it anymore. Can we pray for you? Can we help you, encourage you in some way? If you have need, come forward, let it be known while we stand and sing.